Well, if you, ever, if you have your Bibles with you, and I encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, in April of 1518, which was about six months after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on that church door in Wittenberg, he was summoned by the Augustinian Order, which was the monastic order to which he belonged. And he was summoned to give an account of his theology. This event, this gathering, is referred to as the Heidelberg Disputation. And at this gathering, Luther articulated two ways in which people seek to know God and his ways in this world. To know God and his works of providence. And he distinguished between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. What Luther meant by a theology of glory is, is when one seeks to interpret not only God's revelation of himself, but also his works in this world through the lens of one's own sinful assumptions and reason. What happens when one seeks to view God and his ways in this world through the lens of their own sinful assumptions and reason is they begin to create a God after their own liking. Luther also articulated another way of knowing God and his ways in this world. The theology of the cross. And the theologian of the cross begins with Christ and him crucified. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2, Desire to know, sought to know nothing else but Christ and him crucified. And thus, that is the lens through which the theologian of the cross seeks to interpret all reality. Not only God, but also God's works of providence. Through the spectacles of the cross. And what happens when one views things through the spectacles of the cross, things begin to seem quite paradoxical, especially when compared to how things are viewed through the lens of our own sinful assumptions. For instance, how does God's power and glory and wisdom demonstrated? Not according to earthly power, wisdom, and glory, but according to the humility of the Messiah suffering the cursed death on the cross. It defies human logic. It goes completely counter our expectations. Sort of like if someone has bad vision and has not received glasses or contacts. You might think of centuries ago before glasses were ubiquitous. I'm sure people with bad eyes just 
came to terms with living in a blurry world. Imagine someone receiving the first pair of glasses and for the first time, reality comes into focus. They're seeing things the way they're meant to be viewed. That's sort of what happens when we put on the spectacles of the cross. When we view all of reality through the cross, the cross and the resurrection, we begin to see things the way God has intended them to be seen. Well, as you can see in this passage, Jesus is again for the third time telling his disciples what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to suffer, die, and rise again. Now, of course, the disciples don't get it. They are still theologians of glory, as it were. They're still interpreting Christ and his ministry through the lens of their own sinful assumptions. They're wanting Jesus to conform to their expectations. The reason Jesus is again reminding his disciples, his 12, the apostles, of what's going to happen in Jerusalem is to prepare them for their own sufferings. The apostles in in very short time will have to walk the way of the cross just as Jesus is walking the way of the cross. And what he's saying is that they are going to need to put on the spectacles of the cross if they want to be able to persevere and cope well with these sufferings. He's preparing them for the book of Acts when they themselves will experience the road that Jesus himself is travailing. So what I'd like us to do this morning is to consider how the disciples are wearing the spectacles of their own sinful assumptions. They're theologians of glory. And then we will consider how Jesus is calling them to put on the spectacles of the cross. As I mentioned, here Jesus is taking aside his 12 apostles and reminding them for the third time in this gospel of what's going to happen once they arrive in Jerusalem. If you remember, Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem ever since chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. Sort of been meandering there with his 12. And for the third time, he's reminding them what's going to happen once they reach the city. He needs to fulfill the prophecies that were spoken about in the Old Testament. He's going to be humiliated, mocked, suffer, die, and rise again. Now the disciples... Uh, They likely knew that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. Uh, But they were still under the impression that Jesus was this great political leader. And as such, his main mission was to restore the kingdom to Israel. To renew the theocracy of old. To reestablish the Davidic throne. To rescue Israel from the dominion of foreign oppression. And the apostles, as Christ's right-hand men, would then receive great prestige and power and honor and glory. That's what they're expecting is going to happen once they reach the city limits. They have the spectacles of their own assumptions on. They're wanting Jesus to conform to their expectations. As I mentioned, this is not the first time that Jesus has spoken this way to his Apostles, Back in chapter 9, right about the time when he was transitioning from his Galilean ministry to head towards Jerusalem, he told his apostles, he said, let these words sink into your ears. Listen up. The Son of Man is about to be handed over, delivered into the hands of men. 
And then right after that, the very next passage, uh, we hear that the disciples are arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest. Who is the greatest? And they're, they're clearly under the impression that greatness is defined according to the culture's definition of greatness. And Jesus, as a rebuke, welcomes a little child and says, whoever receives a child receives me, and whoever receives me receives the Father who sent me. Jesus is defining greatness as welcoming the least of these. Jesus is defining greatness as being a servant of all. Or, in this passage, Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, this passage is parallel passage in Mark's gospel. Jesus uh, there also reminds his disciples of these events of Jerusalem. And then right after that reminder, James and John come up to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, by the way, when you enter into your glory, can we uh, be, at your right, be on your right hand and your left hand? They're all about glory. They have no conception of the way of the cross to which Jesus is calling them. They're, they have on the spectacles of their own sinful assumptions and expectations. Well, even once Jesus enters Jerusalem and these events come to fulfillment. They still don't get it. Think about Luke 24. Jesus is dead. He's buried. And the two disciples who are on the road, on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and uh, they're downtrodden. They're depressed. All hope is gone. We thought this was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But he's dead. Think of Acts chapter 1. After Jesus has appeared in his post-resurrection South. And he's about to ascend into heaven to his father's presence. And the disciples say, oh, oh, by the way, Jesus, what you did in Jerusalem, that was pretty cool. You died. You rose from the dead. But when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you now going to deliver us from, from foreign oppression? They still don't get it. They're still wanting Jesus to conform to their own sinful expectations and assumptions. We'll see in verse 31, Jesus is saying that the disciples should have expected what Jesus is telling them here. The Old Testament itself spoke of these events. They spoke of a suffering servant who would die and rise again. For instance, listen to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, which speaks about this suffering servant who is to come. The suffering servant is one who would give his back to those who strike, his cheeks to those who pull out the beard, and he would not hide his face from disgrace and spitting. Or Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, we read, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, now notice this turn of language, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Death and resurrection. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, but yet the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Psalm 22. We'll be singing this psalm after this sermon. It's a psalm all about the death and resurrection of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted that on the cross. He saw this psalm being all about him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I scorned by mankind and despised by the people? 
All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let his God rescue him, for he delights in him. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My tongue sticks to my jaws. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments. For my clothing they cast lots. That's Jesus. And then the second half of the psalm is a psalm of praise. For God's deliverance in the resurrection. This is just but a sampling. The Old Testament testified to a suffering servant who would die and rise again. This was nothing new. Well, why don't the disciples get it? We may think to ourselves, how can they not understand it? Why was it hidden from them? Jesus has explicitly told them now three times uh, what's going to happen explicitly once they enter Jerusalem. The Old Testament itself revealed these things for the people of Israel. Why don't they get it? Why don't they understand? We have to recognize the effect of sin upon our personhood. Not just our wills, but even our minds. It's as if after our fall into sin, our spiritual vision has been corrupted. And we see all things through that lens of our own sinful expectations and corruptions. And just like a, a pair of sunglasses, it, it, it tints all of reality. The disciples just can't get over their expectations. They want a Jesus after their own image. And that's all of us. That's all of us. The Spirit's job, the main job, as we even uh, considered a few weeks ago in our catechism, the Spirit's main job is, is this work of sanctification, whereby He changes our spiritual vision. He replaces this lens of our own sinful expectations and assumptions and gives us the spectacles of the cross, where we begin to see things in a whole new light through the events of Jerusalem, the cross and the resurrection. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, meaning He's the Spirit of the Christ, of the cross and the resurrection. His main job is to reveal Christ and particularly Christ and Him crucified. Not Christ as a cultural warrior, not Christ of health, wealth, and prosperity, but Christ of the cross and the resurrection. That's the Spirit's job. How do we know the Spirit's at work? Because He's revealing this Christ to the hearts of men and women. He gives us the spectacles of the cross and resurrection. That's the reason Jesus is reminding his disciples, his 12, yet again, of what to expect in Jerusalem is to prepare them for their own suffering. It's to prepare them for their own crosses, which they will be picking up in very short time. He's telling them that if they are going to persevere under the cross, if they're going to cope well under the cross, they're going to need to be viewing those sufferings through the spectacles of the cross and the resurrection, through the events of Jerusalem. And we see this radical shift in the apostles, don't we? Think of Peter, for example. 
Peter likely was here hearing Jesus' words, and, and we have many instances of him wearing those spectacles of his own sinful assumptions and expectations. In a very short time, he's going to deny Christ in the moment of his suffering. Peter's not prepared for the cross. But listen to 1 Peter 3 and hear the radical transformation. He is exhorting these Christians in his epistle, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you as if it's some strange thing. But rejoice insofar as you have the opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. That's the same Peter who wanted nothing to do with the way of the cross. But after Pentecost, Pentecost, which was so decisive, things shifted. He's now viewing reality through the events of Jerusalem, through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. It completely changes how he views the sufferings of this life. It's not that nobody, it's not as if no one before Pentecost had this perspective. We, we see this in uh, various glimpses of this in the Old Testament. You think of Psalm 73, begins with the psalmist really wearing the spectacles of his own assumptions, expectations, and then things change as he's giving, given the spectacles of, of the cross as it's foreshadowed to him through the temple. But with these 12, we see the radical radical change when it comes to Pentecost. And the Spirit grants them these new spectacles. So I'd like us to now consider how the spectacles of the cross change our perspective. Because we too need the Spirit to do this work. We too need the Spirit to give us the spectacles of the cross and resurrection to view our own sufferings, to view our own crosses that we endure in this life. So that we might persevere and cope well with them. Now, these spectacles don't give us an exhaustive knowledge of the sufferings of this life. We don't know things the way God knows them. There remains a vast distinction between the creator and the creature. However, they do change our perspective. Change our perspective on the various adversities the Lord permits into our life. So I guess to consider how the spectacles of the cross and the resurrection change our perspective on our own sufferings. So first, the spectacles of the cross and the resurrection show us during our suffering that God is at his best when things seem to be at their worst. God is at his best when things seem to be at their worst. Think of what the cross reveals for us. The cross is the greatest human tragedy in, in history. It's the greatest atrocity, the greatest act of evil that's ever been committed. The Son of God was crucified in the hands of men. But yet, that same cross was also the greatest gift and blessing to mankind. How do we know that? The resurrection. The resurrection proves to us that the cross is not merely the greatest tragedy ever conducted in human history, but the resurrection proves to us it also was the greatest blessing and gift in history. Jesus proved to be who he said he was in the resurrection. We see this foreshadowed for us even in the Old Testament. You think of the life of Joseph. What many men 
meant for evil, God destined for good, so that many people may be blessed. God promises to be a God of the cross and resurrection for us. Think of Romans 8, 28. Uh, for those who love God, God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now in this age, we most of the time don't know how God is working the sufferings, the, the evil, the adversities in our life into ultimate good. We know he's working it for our good, namely our conformity into the image of Christ. But beyond that, that's a mystery to us. That belongs to the secret will of God. However, we can rest in the fact that God is doing that. God is doing that. Corey Ten Boom, whom many of you are probably familiar with, and, and the suffering she endured in Nazi uh, concentration camps, she uses the imagery of a, a tapestry to make this point that in this life, our sufferings view uh, oftentimes seem like the backside of a tapestry, chaotic, loose threads going every direction. But we do know that there's the other side. The beautiful side. In the age to come, we're going to have a glimpse at how God has worked the sufferings of this present age into his ultimate good and for his glory. And Peter himself, in 1 Peter 3, he says that we are to rejoice insofar as we share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says that there's going to be much joy and gladness when the glory of Christ is revealed in his second coming. Why? I think part of the reason why there's going to be gladness is because we're going to get a glimpse at the other side of the tapestry, how God has made good on his promise to be the God of the cross and the resurrection. Imagine when Peter says that we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator during times of suffering, persecution, he had this kind of God in mind. The God that he witnessed. Who sent his son to die and rise again. And so we too can entrust ourselves to a God who's at his best when things seem to be at their worst. We only have this perspective when we view our sufferings through the events of Jerusalem. Well, the spectacles of the cross and the resurrection also show us that during our suffering... God loves us even when our circumstances seem to testify to the opposite reality. We've all probably been there. Where we're going through a difficult season and our circumstances seem to testify to the fact that we have been forsaken by God. Our circumstances seem to testify to the reality that we have been abandoned. But yet, the spectacles of the cross assure us that we are actually loved. Even when we don't feel it, even when our circumstances don't prove it, it assures us that we are loved. How? Well, when we look to the cross, think about what the revelation of the cross is. It's a demonstration that no matter what's going on in your life, God loves you. Why? Because he went to such great lengths in sending his son to bear the worst suffering one could bear. Now, Jesus' suffering was not just, did not just stop with the physical torment of dying on a Roman cross. The greatest suffering he endured was bearing 
hell for you and for me. Bearing the wrath of God that our sin had merited and earned. That's infinitely greater than the worst suffering any human person can endure in this age. And God was willing to go to, those, to that great of length for you. So that you would never have to experience that judgment, that severe judgment of God. God in Christ, through the cross, defeated death so that you might have the hope of a suffering-free age to come. And so, when we need to be assured of God's love, we look to the cross, which is outside of us, which is objective, which is historical, which is not contingent upon the emotional state of our heart, which is not contingent upon the circumstances that might be present in our life. But it's there every morning. It's there every evening. It's a testimony declaring to us that God loves us. Well, the spectacles of the cross are the only way in which we can find that assurance. And John himself knew this. John, who is here present in Luke 18, uh, listen to what he says afterwards in 1 John. He says, this is how we know God. Not that we've loved God, but that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a, another word for wrath-absorbing sacrifice. How do we know that we are loved by God? We look to the propitiation of Christ on the cross. That Christ was swallowed up in the floodwaters of God's wrath for you. That's where we find the assurance of our Heavenly Father's love. Well, the spectacles of the cross and the resurrection also show us that during our suffering, we are not to be surprised, but yet we are to rejoice. Now, we know that the pattern of Christ's life was cross and then glory. Suffering and then exaltation. And he says that a disciple is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then you should expect the same. What he's saying is that our lives imitate that basic pattern. Suffering in this age, glory in the age to come. The way of the cross before the way of glory. Therefore, what this tells us is we shouldn't be surprised when this, this age is an age of suffering. We shouldn't be surprised. However, we are still promised a taste a taste of Christ's resurrection even in this life. You know, the Apostle Paul, someone who wasn't here in Luke 18, he became an apostle later on um, through that Damascus Road experience, but the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 was praying to the Lord that this thorn in the flesh, we don't know what it was, but this immense suffering that he was enduring would be relieved. He's praying that the Lord would relent and take this thorn from him, but yet God responds and, and and says that it's his will that this thorn remain. And this is what God then says to Paul. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now notice what Paul's response is. He says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul didn't love suffering for its own sake. 
what changed his perspective was this promise of God. That it's in his thorn that he would experience the power of God. It's in his thorn that he would experience the resurrection power of Christ sustaining him and ministering to his soul. And so for you and me this morning, we also have that same promise. That whatever trial, tribulation, or suffering that you are enduring, great or small, today, it's in that circumstance that Christ promises to display his power to sustain you, to encourage you, to minister to you. And that is why we have reason to rejoice in our sufferings. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage, Jesus is calling us by the power of the Holy Spirit to take up the spectacles of the cross and resurrection so that we might view our own crosses, our own sufferings, rightly, the way that God has ordained it, and, that, and thus we may persevere well under them. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ and Him crucified.